Alright, welcome to Faith and Culture Now. Today we are going to be talking about some fun topics and I'm your host Scott Schiffer and I'm joined today by Scott Higginbotham and Bethany Sundstrom-Smith. So thank you guys for being here. Thank Thanks. you for having me. Thank you. Yeah. Bethany has a THM from DTS, Dallas Theological Seminary, with a focus on media arts and she currently helps digital entrepreneurs, helping them grow their businesses. She lives in Portland, Oregon with her husband and her two young boys. And Scott is a pastor of Temple Baptist Church in Amarillo, Texas. He graduated from Southwestern Seminary with his MDiv, and he loves his wife and his two little girls. So Bethany, you've got two boys. Scott, you've got two girls. And um, I have four daughters. So, um, <laughs> oh, wow. uh, so I'm outnumbered. <laughs> yes, very outnumbered. So. I'm representing the boys. I know people always say, you should try for a girl. And I'm like, well, I know too many people who have like all boys or all girls, but I'm like, there's no guarantee of that. Oh, yeah. so. I have a friend who's a biologist and she said to me a few years ago, statistically speaking, you people tell you it's 50-50 each time, but the more you have of one gender, the more likely it is you'll continue having more children of that same mm -hmm. gender. Anyway. Just to throw that out there. That is not our main topic for today. Our main topics today begin with the idea of resting, which is something we don't do enough of having kids. Also is something we don't do enough of because of the way that our culture focuses on work and the reality of just the work situation and capitalism. So Bethany, what's kind of what you want to bring to the table on this one? Yeah, so this was the topic I brought up and just kind of thinking through some of the questions that are going on today about how to work with COVID. So, so many people are working at home now and that's just really changed the dynamic of are they working 40 hours a week? How does that work out? That type of thing. And thinking about some of the other questions like minimum wage, I know is coming up a lot. And just all of those, I feel like do really come back to this idea kind of of like, how much should we work? Do we have to keep working? Should we work 100 hours a week or two hours a week? You know, like, how do you balance all of that? And I think it comes back to, as Christians, how we view this idea of rest and also how we view how valuable or where a person gets their value from, right? Like, especially in a capitalistic society, we tend to think, oh, the more you do, that's how you prove your worth and how valuable you are right but as christians you know we believe that we derive our value from being children of god we're just inherently valuable we don't have to prove anything we don't have to work a certain amount of hours any of that so that's why i brought it up just really thinking through some of those ideas and then i think the more we understand those foundational things then we can apply it more to some of our political things that we're trying to decide but i have because i do have the two young kids i i don't know if you're picking up the screaming here but you guys might hear a bit of that it's all good once you have kids it really shifts like how you see time right and there's been other like times in my life that I'm really busy too. And so I just have been interested in this topic more and more of finding rest, like not 
like that it's really valuable because I think mm-hmm. we don't value it. We don't make time for it. So my bio, you said I live in Portland, Oregon, which I, I lived in Dallas because that's where my degree's from. So I was there for several years. It's been about 10 years since I left. But there, like, there still is some of this where things are shut down on Sundays or things at least don't open. But here, you don't really see any of that. And I think with me also working in in like the digital space, there's no like time to shut it off, right? I say I think that just being in the digital space, it brings up a whole nother issue of rest. And that is mm-hmm. when we're not at work, we're on our phones, we're on our computers, and we're on our televisions or other things of that nature. It's like, when do you turn that stuff off to rest? I saw or read an article a couple years ago, there was a company in California that they decided to make every weekend a three-day weekend. And they noticed that their productivity between employees boosted like 100%. It doubled their productivity, letting everybody have an extra day off for the same pay. And it's because people felt like, okay, I've got a three-day weekend coming up. I'm going to get buckled down. I'm going to get everything done in four days instead of five. The people that were running the company said, we'd really like to make this more of our cultural tradition, especially in, in a country where the world is getting smaller and people have so many other things vying for their attention. If people feel valued at their job, feel respected at their job, also feel like they can have time for family and other things, they're more likely to be better at being productive in their job during the time that we actually have them. And so that's, of course, before COVID hit. Now you see people working from home. You see a lot less need for people to travel for meetings. You know, like we're all three hours and hours away from each other. And here we are having this live meeting right now. Mm -hmm. So the idea of needing to travel for work and be gone for work and away from your family for work, I think all that's sort of up in the air at this point. Like, do we really need to do things the way we've been doing them? I'm not sure that the, uh, the pandemic has done any help for us in terms of how we view the the space for rest in the midst of work. Because like you say, so many people are now working from home. That work and office line has so completely blurred. Uh, and, and I know that as a pastor, because my wife is constantly on me, you know, when I come home in the evening, turn off your phone, get off your phone. You know, somebody texts you, you don't, I mean, you don't have to respond to them right now. We can carry our office in our phone or our place of work in our, on our phone. And so that, you know, culturally things were already sliding that way. The pandemic has already made things more difficult in that regard. Yeah. I think we just need to, I've, I've had some jobs before where they've been very like, you need to leave your work life or your home life at home. Mm -hmm. And I'm like, that doesn't, it makes more sense to me to think I need to leave my work life at work Mm because you can't really just separate out. If something bad happened at home, your grandma died or something, you can't go to work and just be like super productive, right? So I think it goes into all of that, just giving giving people space for it. But yeah, like working, having everything on your phone and you just have to set these boundaries and I think practically, yeah, just being really strict about some of those. I am not good at that at all. (laughs) So, yeah, it's just an interesting thing, like the way culture is moving that way. And yeah, like it's not sustainable how we're doing things (laughs) right now. It's not healthy. Yeah, certainly. Many people have a hard time saying no. And so, you know, when it comes to your employer saying, can you do this? Can you do this? Next thing you know, you've got three hours of work to do at home. After you leave the office, if you're in the office, or if you are at home and working from home, 
you don't really work eight to five. You're sort of working from when you get up till when you go to bed. And even if it's sort of on and off, I think that the idea of leaving work at home or home at work, vice versa, whatever, um, <laughs> you know, it, it's this idea of compartmentalization. And when we compartmentalize our lives, we're being asked to sort of put aside who we are here while we're over here. And in reality, we should be a whole person. We should be integrated in everything we do. So we have to find a balance between work, between family, between hobbies, between church, between responsibilities, you know, with say taking care of parents or other things of that nature. And uh, we've got to learn how to balance. And in the middle, in the midst of all that balance, we have to make time for rest. And I think in scripture, the purpose of rest is sort of twofold. One, we need it to recharge. And two, we don't tend to think about God when we are incredibly busy. And part of the idea of resting, part of the idea of resting in the Old Testament, having a Sabbath, was so you could specifically take time to think about God and worship God. And so as Christians, we have to make time to rest, to recharge, and to focus our attention on God, who gives us the energy and strength that we need to go back out into the world as Christians and live doing all the things that we're called to do, work, family, kids, sports, whatever else, right? And I think, you know, just pastorally, I I think it's interesting that because God has made us, he also inserts this command for rest because I think he knows that we would work ourselves to the bone or work ourselves into complete oblivion if we were not told every now and then, somewhat humorously, if I can quote Psalm 23, sometimes it's important that he makes us lie down in green pastures. (laughs) I I think that's that's a necessary discipline for us so that we don't burn ourselves out. Well, I think it's, it is important to take the time to, you know, worship and reflect on God or, you know, however you want to say that, but all of us having some experience in ministry, we also know that can turn into just doing a lot of work, right? Mm -hmm. So it's like, I'd go to church on Sundays, but I have all these responsibilities and I'm doing this and maybe I can't even be in the service because I'm helping out in Sunday school or I'm doing all these things. So I think it is really important to even look at those times that we think maybe we're resting or we're doing something a little different than say our normal job. So I think like one thing for me I'm trying to do is like actually find times to just rest. Like not have anything I have to do. If I have a hobby I want to do, or if I have whatever, I can do that. But just really, because I'm a very like, go, go, go. I want to do all these things. And it's like, I turn my hobbies into my jobs or into like ministry volunteer things or (laughs) whatever, right? I'm like, I need to just have this time, this space where like, because I do think you can hear God better that way. You learn more about yourself that way. You're just rested. Like you can't function as a, whole person if you don't have actual rest. I mean, God even rests, right? So I think it's just a really important thing we're kind of missing, (laughs) missing in our culture today. And I hope we can find ways to get that more integrated as, as culture moves forward. Yeah, it's important. It's a necessary part of who God created us to be. And uh, speaking of who God created us to be, Christians are creative. Christians take part in the arts. Christians 
tend to be involved in Hollywood, be involved in, in authoring books, other things. They also tend to consume culture, right, and consume the arts. So, Scott, you had a topic for us about the arts today. Sure. Yeah. You know, I was reflecting a lot. I have been reflecting a lot on, on this question for, for several years. And the question in some is if Christians are going to be involved in artistic expression, whether it's in film writing, production, you know, whatever it's going to be, are there certain lines that Christians ought not cross? And, and part of the genesis of this question, you know, it's been 17, 18 years that I've been thinking about this. I remember when I was growing up as a Christian in church, kind of the, the line of what was culturally acceptable for a Christian to consume in terms of, you know, cinematic kind of stuff was the MPAA rating system. And so if a, if a movie was G, then it was totally okay for Christian people to watch. But if a movie was rated R, then that's the land of darkness and you should never go there. And then about 2003, Mel Gibson makes this movie about Jesus called The Passion of the Christ. And it is very deservedly an R-rated movie. And, you know, I think it gave a lot of people some pause to say, well, I mean, I mean, just saying that a movie is rated R doesn't necessarily mean that it is awful. And so the way this has morphed in my head is, where is a place? I mean, are there certain lines that Christians uh, who are creative should not be engaged? I, I think we would agree that, you know, obviously pornography is a place where Christians ought not to be involved. But are there, are there other places? I mean, you know, when Christians write things, is, is profanity completely supposed to be removed? If uh, Christians are involved in, in telling a story, do we need to make sure we skate over, you know, any kind of sexual issues, you know, explicit or not? Should Christians be careful in the way that we portray violence? And so that's been, uh, just, those are just some examples of some of those things that I've thought about. Yeah, I think those are important questions. You know, it sort of makes me think of even like the issue of characterization and creating characters. I mean, are Christians limited in only creating Christian characters in their content? Are Christians open to create characters who are not Christians? And even if you have a Christian character, what if that Christian struggles with addiction? You know, what if that Christian has a drug problem? Or what if this non-Christian character you create has a drug problem? How much of that do we sort of focus on in, in the work that we create, whether it be a novel or a graphic novel or even something for cinematic or television type purposes? So these are, these are really good questions. And I think for me, I'm very interested in a good story. And I feel like on the flip side of your question, in much Christian art, stories have been sacrificed for cheesy Christianized principles and viewfinders for seeing things where you don't really get the reality of the situation, right? I think of this film uh, I saw a number of years ago, something about maybe Through the Fire or something like that. Uh, it's, it's a movie with Benicio Del Toro, and he is a drug addict, and it has some just horrific, you know, drug abuse stuff. And there's a time throughout the film where he's sobering up and going through withdrawal and all this kind of stuff. It's very real and it's, it's very hard to watch, but it also doesn't glorify any of that. And you want him, as you watch the movie, you want him to overcome this addiction. You want him to come out as a better person on the other side of this. And so do you glorify the drug abuse, do you glorify the violence or do you use it for character growth, character development? Do you show it for what it is? Saving Private Ryan is a pretty gory movie. 
-hmm. but is probably one of the most realistic World War II Storm in the Beach at Normandy type films that's ever been done. There are older films that just don't really capture as much of the reality of the situation as that one does. The Bible doesn't really gloss over some of these human issues, and it captivates and highlights the disturbing nature of sin in all of its gory entrails. I mean, part of the reason why we don't tell the last third of the book of Judges to kids in Sunday school is because it's it's a pretty raunchy and debaucherous kind of tale as Israel slips into civil war. You know, even some of the stories that we hear from Genesis, I mean, we hear the Abraham, we hear the Isaac, we hear the Jacob stories, and yet somehow we forget that there are some fairly graphic kind of moments that the Bible doesn't gloss over. I think framing it as, are there lines we shouldn't cross, kind of sets up this, right? Like you were talking about with the right rating system, right? Yeah. It's not all cut and dry like that. So yeah, kind of like you guys have been saying, the way I look at it is if you're involved in that, like my degrees in media arts, so actually that was kind of a bit of a focus, like talking about this stuff when I was in seminary. So I think it's about the story and what's the storytelling. And you absolutely have to have characters who are like not Christian, who are doing bad things in quotes, because that's not, it's not real if you're not having that. Like it's not going to be an interesting story. It's not going to tell what we want to tell so what we want to tell as christians is stories and they don't have to be explicitly so that's something that christians do a lot right like you want to tell a story about hope or whatever and you make it so obvious (laughs) that everybody's like this doesn't this is not real so i think the more real you can make a story so it's going to have all these elements of things that actually happen in life so it may have talk about sex it may talk about violence i think the ways you present those things may be different especially with violence like that's the one that kind of gets me some that i don't think things need to be quite as violent as they're often shown and with sex too and with everything (laughs) there's always scenes in movies where i'm like this is just like why is it here right you shouldn't ever be asking why is this scene here or that was just too much of whatever right i mean it's not a good are we showing this because we can or are we showing this because it adds to the story Right. So I think as a Christian, just looking at the story and saying, like, is this true? Because I also think that as a Christian, I believe God's involved in everything. God created everything. Like everything is working towards the ultimate redemption. Truth, right? Yeah. And so like in one sense, I don't think you can even make a movie or tell a story or write a book or something that's not telling a Christian story. But I think more to the point, if you want to kind of be involved in certain things, and I do think, again, I don't think it's a line. You just have to evaluate, is this being true to kind of how I understand the world? And is the moral of this what I want to be a part of? I just saw, I haven't watched the movie, but I saw a clip for on Netflix. They have this movie out now. Um, about The Secret. So that was a book that was popular a while ago mm-hmm. that's basically, if you put thoughts into the world, good thoughts into the world, good things will come back to you, right? <laughs> so like that movie, I probably, like the whole premise of that is not really something I believe that you just like have this power to attract good things to you. So I probably wouldn't be involved in that, right? <laughs> right. But most most stories out there, I think, are getting to this idea of, grace or love or you know all sorts of things like that and so 
like the idea of lines, I don't think works very well. Like this is a line you can't cross. I think it's about the story. It's about being true. It's about people typically don't like stories that don't have these elements. And I think that is because we're designed that way. And I believe Christianity is true. And so it's going to come across whether or not the person's a Christian or not, like these these things yeah. that exist in the world. I pretty well tell tell my congregation on a regular basis that I don't think we've told an original story in 2,000 years. And that's because yeah. the stories that we tell often reflect gospel truths. And even people who aren't Christians somehow end up telling these kinds of stories that reflect gospel truths even when they don't mean to. And uh, I've found that that's been a great leveraging tool for helping people think, sharpen, and, and then ultimately even talk about their faith. And uh, how, yeah. does that, how does that reflect in the stories that we tell? This reminds me of the book by Francis Schaeffer, Art and the Bible. And in the book, he says there are four kinds of artists. There are artists who know God's truth and reflect it in their work. There are artists who know God's truth and don't reflect it in their work. There are artists who don't know God's truth, but still reflect it in their work. And there are artists who don't know God's truth and don't reflect it in their work. For me, I think that as long as we're not glorifying evil, I think that it's something we can participate in. And I think that the rating system is helpful and good. There's things that I would show my six-year-old that I wouldn't show my two-year-old. There's things I would show my 10-year-old I wouldn't show my six-year-old. And there's things that my wife and I would see that we wouldn't show our kids. But it's a, it's a matter of maturity. It's a matter of dealing with situations in our culture that we need to deal with. I, so this is where I offend a bunch of people in the podcast, right? So there's these two authors, right? C.S. Lewis well, and J.R.R. Tolkien. Listen, right? That's right, yeah. <laughs> so, so we got Lewis and we got Tolkien, right? Lewis writes the Chronicles of Narnia, which is very much Aslan is Christ. You know, it's very, you know, each different character represents Christian principles or Christian people or Christian ideals. It's very overt. And then you have the Lord of the Rings trilogy, the Book of the Hobbit, and uh, you have all these great Christian principles interwoven through it, but no character really represents a specific person or idea from the Bible because each character is their own character. And so, you know, you sort of have these two ways of doing things here. And the Lewis way of doing things drives me nuts. I just don't like it. But the Tolkien way of doing things, I think, is incredibly good. But there are people on the flip side who love the Chronicles of Narnia, who think that this is great Christian illustration. And for me, I just would rather hear a good story where you've got these principles interwoven throughout it. Um, I often talk about how my favorite comic character is Superman. And I love talking about Superman because you can build so many bridges to the gospel and understanding the gospel through the character of Superman, who's the only son of someone who's sent to this earth, who is practically sinless, depending on what iteration of Superman you look at, who right. does everything he can selflessly for the people of the earth, gives yep. himself for them, sacrifices himself for them. And he's just like Christ in that respect. And so I think that when it comes to art, you just sort of look and you look at it and you go, hey, you know, as a Christian, I want to be an actor. Okay, I'm married. So should I take roles that require me to kiss someone who's not my spouse? That's a personal decision that people have to make if they're going to be in that field. If you're going to be a writer, there's a good chance you're going to be writing on a show that other people are not all Christians. Mm -hmm. And that's okay. You've got to learn to work with them. 
you can introduce your ideas and principles just as they introduce their ideas and principles and you work together. And in doing that, you help build a bridge to the gospel with those people. But for whatever we do as Christians, we have to, we have to take our own matter of conscience into perspective. And, you know, there may be some shows that some Christians are okay watching and other Christians are not okay watching those same shows. And that's all right. I think that the true gospel leaves an openness to that so that it's sort of the idea of weaker and stronger brethren in the New Testament. Uh, some things affect people differently. If something affects you negatively, you should probably stay away from it. All right. Any last thoughts, Scott? No, I think you summed it up really, really well. The premise there, you know, I know that I asked the question, you know, other lines and I, and I, Bethany, you hit it on the head. I was thinking the exact same thing. And so I really appreciate this insight. And I'm hoping that the listeners today will, will also be able to bear this in mind and we'll continue to think about it and think about it well. So the last topic we've got today deals with social media platforms and censorship. So this is where I'm sort of coming from on this one. And it's this idea that recently... A number of companies censored Parler. Google took it off their thing. And then Twitter censored President Trump's account. And so Twitter said, well, we think that his statements are inciting violence and all this stuff. So the issue of free speech was brought up. And you have people saying, but it's a private company. They can do what they want. And then other people are saying, well, if it's a private companies can do what they want, private companies can open for business, no mask required because they're private companies. Then on the flip side of that, you have people like Elon Musk who's saying, you know, Facebook is one of the companies that's promoted all this violence because of the way they don't censor their media. You have the documentary, The Social Dilemma that came out on Netflix a while back that talks about how the ads you see on Facebook cause polarization for people on different camps. You also have the idea of what constitutes free speech and the, uh, the First Amendment and all this. If you have freedom of speech, but you can't use that speech to harm others, then you know how do we determine what's harmful and what's not harmful? Twitter leaves some accounts open that have ties to the Taliban. Well, why do they do that? Well, maybe they're not generating enough traffic for them to really pay attention to it. The president's Twitter account generates a lot of traffic. Everybody pays attention to that. And so you sort of have all these different things in flux. You have people on the political left saying that disinformation and hate speech is being protected if you don't censor it. On the political right, you have people saying that conservative speech is being censored. You have uh, Jim Dennison the other day said, you know, look, as Christians, what if some of our beliefs as Christians are considered hate speech by non-Christians? Does that mean we have to get ready for that to be censored on social media? And so anyway, there's a lot to talk about with regard to censorization. Um, Bethany, what are some of your thoughts? So it is a huge topic, and I feel like there are a lot of different components to it, right? So it's that's what makes it a little bit of a harder thing to just come on here and discuss for 10 minutes. So I have a lot of background in digital marketing. I've ran ads on Facebook. I have used all the platforms for myself, for businesses, for churches, for a variety of things. So some of this to me is oh yeah, this is just what has always happened. Like these companies are always kicking people off, censoring whatever from either side. I see it all the time. It's always been that way. And I think the general public maybe doesn't understand how much some of this has always happened. So I think some of that, there's that. Like when I I was just running a Facebook ad for my business and it was just about like a planning tool or something. And it didn't get approved because Facebook has all of these rules about you have to phrase things a specific way, kind of like I, I think in it, it said like 
you are the magic. I think that's what got it caught, right? Which I just meant like, it was just a fun thing to say, right? I didn't yeah, literally sure. mean they're magic, but like <laughs> Facebook rules kind of don't know that, right? And so they have all these things set up. So I, most I, of it's done with AI. I mean, it's not even a person going, I don't like what she said here. Uh, yeah, I think on the ads, it is a person, but it- yeah, there's words and there's different things that are blocked just through AI and just through the algorithm. I mean, the algorithms are a whole other thing that algorithms make everything super targeted so on any of these platforms you go in and you see what you want to see so it just confirms this bias and so (laughs) people who get to the extreme left or the extreme right they go on there and they get the sense that oh this is what everyone's talking about but really it's very targeted for them so that's one issue that's over here like kind of the more censorship that happened recently with President Trump, with Parler. I mean, that is kind of an interesting thing, because especially in this country, we've not seen some of that happen on the level that it happened at. The president before has never (laughs) been taken off a platform. So I think, yeah, it's, it's just an interesting thing. I will say one thing that I was kind of preparing for this, I was thinking about is that He chose to use his personal Twitter account, Mm -hmm. which when he became president, I don't know if people like remember this really, that was pretty controversial because it was kind of viewed like he should, I think it's at White House is probably the official um, account. Mm -hmm. And it was like, that's what you use when you're president. And I think that that account, maybe they would have, Twitter would have looked at and seen, well, that's the office of the president, so we're not going to take that down. And actually, Trump was able to still send out videos and things on that account. Um, so he wasn't fully censored, right? But he, they did take his personal one down. So that may have had an impact on that decision. There's just so many things that go into play with all of this, right? And then as far as Parler and getting taken down from, yeah, like the app stores, and then actually from Amazon took them off their servers. So <laughs> I think I actually went and I looked at an interview that the CEO of Parlor did with Kara Swisher, and it's on the podcast Sway. It's through the New York Times. Mm-hmm. But he's talking about how they were, and I don't know if you guys, I'd heard this talked about, but I hadn't heard it specifically, the way they were trying to monitor things that were going on and their rules around it. So I guess they just had users who applied to be, I forgot what they called them, kind of like the deciders if something needed to come off the platform. So if somebody reported like, hey, this seems too extreme, then there was a group of these five or six people. If they all decided it was bad enough, then it would get kicked off. But if they all decided it or not all, I think like three out of the five, which I'm like, there's a lot of things that I feel like just the random person on the street maybe isn't, especially when you talk about legalities, right? Like there's all these laws because I deal with copyright law and what I do a lot and a lot of people don't understand, like you can't just take an image from Google or whatever it is. So I think that may have had a lot to do with it. That's what I've heard. I don't know. I could ramble on about all of this for quite some time. It's it's, it's a very deep issue, right? There's an inherent difficulty with freedom of speech in the sense that if a segment of the population isn't free, then none of us are actually free. I think that's pretty solid maxim, I think, when we start thinking about this. So, you know, the ability of a government or an institution or a business to censor the speech in a privately owned kind of thing, I mean, then you're not, you know, it might be different for a private 
organization to censor the speech of its employees or, or people under it, that's different than the government coming along and saying, you can't say that, you can't say that. Those, those are operating on, on different levels. And, and you see that in a, in a multiplicity of facets in our culture, not just in terms of like Twitter and that kind of thing, but also in terms of NFL players and professional athletes, you know, kneeling during the national anthem. And one of the things that I find most interesting is that a lot of censorship always, it's an outward thing. And pastorally, this is where I kind of come down on this, is that uh, as Christians, uh, censorship, uh, although we don't like other people censoring us, there is a sense in which as Christians, we need to be self-censoring. You know, we, we say, wait a minute, this isn't going to help my neighbor, or this isn't going to help the cause of the gospel. And so I'm not going to say that, or I'm not going to thumb this out. So while part of me wants to say censorship is awful, the truth is, I think censorship is a necessary thing, but it ought to be more self-imposed than it is externally imposed, because yeah. that's just such a weird area. It is. I think that, you know, obviously these companies like Facebook, I mean, it's their product. They have a right to turn on and turn off what they want. Right. Uh, we may not like it. But also, we have to pay attention to what we say. Yeah. And whether you're the president of the United States or whether you're the, you know, the leader of the PTO at your school, like you've got yeah. to pay attention to the things you say. And unfortunate as it is, most people on social media see what they see devoid of all the context. They don't have all the information. And so what you say is judged oftentimes on a very small contextual scale as opposed to, you know, here are all the ins and outs of what this person is saying. And so because of that, I think as Christians, we just need to, for our own selves, as you say, self-censor. Don't say things that doesn't build up. Don't say things that you can't say in love. Don't say things that would be construed as hate speech. There's just no need for it. There's no reason for it. As far as, you know, whether or not Parler should have been taken down or whether or not Twitter should, you know, be doing this, I mean, the fact of the matter is a lot of bad stuff happens on social media platforms and they've got to do their best to keep those bad things from happening, whether it's violence or whether it's trafficking, human, human trafficking, or whether it is, you know, other things of that nature, bullying for, for crying out loud, how much bullying goes on in social media for, for kids between the ages of 12 and 16. Isn't there a double standard just on that? The irony of this is for the last five 10 years, whatever, we've had this anti-bullying initiative, particularly on social media. That's what we've been calling for is some censorship, you know? Oh, hey, we've even put in an, an emoji or an icon on digital devices that if you see digital bullying, you can post this icon and let people know, oh, we can see this. So we've been talking about this for a long time. Maybe the issue is now we're seeing it less on a grassroots level policing and more on an institutional or even governmental yeah. level. I think it, what it comes down to is we're all okay with censorship until you censor something that we don't want you to censor. You know, <laughs> yeah. we're all okay with it until you censor something that I think is okay. Right. Mm -hmm. And or in something reality, I said, yeah, you know, <laughs> yeah. well, I don't want them to censor this because that's what I agree with. Right. Well, should you agree with that if it's something that people think needs to be censored? Maybe you should. Maybe they're wrong. But more than likely, you know, if people are going, this needs to be censored because it's hate speech, we should probably think about what we're saying, uh, you yeah. know, what we're, what we're approving. 
I think that's probably the point to be taken away because I do hear a lot of these companies are all run by liberals. They're all this, they're all that. Mm -hmm. And like, it's not true. Like, <laughs> you know, if you get to the point where like, nobody's going to let you on their server and everybody's shutting you down, it's like, you really need to think like, and maybe, yeah, you are facilitating the bullying. I do feel like is a term that people identify with more because hate speech, that's kind of contentious. What does that mean? What is that? But bullying, that's a really good term. I'm glad you brought that up because yeah, that's kind of what it comes down to, right? A lot of it's bullying that is getting taken off of these platforms, whether it's specific to a person or whether it's just kind of general about a category of people or whatever. And yeah, like there's so much of that in the digital spaces. I also wanted to mention that people tend to behave differently online. Not everyone, a <laughs> lot of people and specific segments definitely will say things online. They would never say in person ever. Oh yeah. Internet courage and is a thing. Don't do that. Like if you wouldn't say this when your mom is in the room, don't post it online. I mean, <laughs> you know, oh, yeah. like you got it back to the self-censoring and a lot of people just don't have that ability to do that. And so then it does kind of become this societal issue and we run into that in ministry too, right? It's not, it's not just an online thing either that oh, we yeah. run up against some of this stuff. People at your church will say things on Facebook that they would never say in your church. And, um, you know, I, I think from the sort of the more professorial side of things for me, the things that students will email and say to me, they would never say in the classroom to me. And I mean, not always disrespectful, but just, you know, very casual or, hey, what are you going to do about me, you know, to to help me get my grade up? I don't know, maybe turn your stuff in, you know, (laughs) but but it's somehow on social media or somehow, you know, an email, it's my fault that they have a low grade, not their fault. You know, I mean, that that kind of thing happens. And, you know, I think even with our friends and our relatives, my goodness, you know, your, your relatives will say stuff to you on Facebook through Messenger that they would never say to you while you're at their house or they're at your house, right? And so- um, Is it fair to say that in everything we've talked about today, I mean, whether we're talking about, you know, lines in media or we've talked about the idea of rest or even in in this sector, we're talking about the needs of, of the person to take personal responsibility over their own- Kind of things we, we like things to be polarized, black and white. We want them to either be right or wrong. And yet there's this spectrum that as people, we have to live in this space and we have to figure out how does, how does this genuinely work as the spirit leads me? I think that is a perfect summary of what we've talked about today, Scott. So, yeah. um, in fact, I think it's so good, we might just close with it. <laughs> oh, man. <Oops>. So. <laughs> no, it's great. It's great. So, Bethany, Scott, thank you guys so much for being here. And uh, we'll see you guys next time on Faith and Culture Now.